Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's scripture reading is 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 through 14. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. I hope uh, you were as encouraged as I was watching that video um, about how your generosity, it was your generosity uh, that is helping meet very tangible needs and bringing joy to the city. That is what we do, and uh, that is what we're called to do as well. So there's a lot going on, and there's so many different ways to participate. Even though much of life is actually happening virtually, please let me encourage you uh, to participate together, to participate in what God is doing in this city, to go down deeper with each other, to go further up and further in. Let's do that together. So of course, um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Go online, see our social media stuff, and you can see other ways to connect and get involved. Now, of course, the problem with all of humanity is often there's so much that stops us from doing that. There was a New York Times article, this is a couple um, months ago, I think, by now, noting about how our prosperity has increased worldwide, but actually overall happiness has not the World Bank reports that actually back in 1980, 44% of the world actually lived below the poverty line. Uh, but by 2015, so just five years ago, less than 10% of the world lived below the poverty line. And we don't talk about this, but that that's amazing. There's a lot of good there. That's billions of people no longer living below the poverty line. Um, in the U.S., real per capita income has actually tripled since the late 1950s. But what's interesting is, is the happiness indicators have not actually gotten happier. We, we have not actually become more content individuals. We're not actually feeling like we're better off. Um, what, and the question is, is, why is that? Well, the article says 
although this is what the article says it says although moral philosophers may wish homo sapiens were wired more rationally we would like to be we humans are walking talking status meters constantly judging our world and social standing by comparing ourselves with others today with our um, and with our prior selves and so what it's saying is this our comparison radars are keeping us from being content because we only see ourselves in comparison. You should say, okay, but what is that really? What is that? Well, we talk about community here a lot. We talk about doing things together, as we just said, being this church, but we probably don't talk enough about what's actually stopping us, what actually is destroying that. And this is why we're doing this series on the life of David, because we're looking at his life to look at our life. And by doing so, we're trying to define humanity. We're trying to define who we are, because we actually are not going to be able to define justice and even talk about justice. We can't define what we ought to do until we first define what we ought to be. Envy destroys what we ought to be. Envy is actually as old as humanity. The minute Adam and Eve were kicked out of uh, the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, is because they were envying what they couldn't have, their children, right, Cain killed Abel over envy. One of the Ten Commandments is do not covet. And, of course, you can't, if you break command one through nine, you actually break coveting. You actually are envying. So envy is actually everywhere, and yet strangely, here's what's so strange, nobody talks about it. Nobody actually feels like, actively, that they envy too much. I've been ministering uh, for almost two decades now, and I don't think anybody's ever come to me and said, hey, I have a serious problem with envy. That's how prevalent it is. That's actually how, how sneaky it is as well. And so our, our text will help us today. It breaks down in, in three ways. The, the seriousness of envy, the, the signs of envy, and then the solutions of envy. So we're going to look at the seriousness, the signs, and then the solution of envy. So first, first the seriousness. Uh, few, and this is the problem, right? Few New Yorkers think envy is serious. In fact, I'm positive that in our social consciousness, it, maybe you right now, you're thinking there's 30 other things that we might actually need to be uh, addressing right now before envy. See, at worst, we think, oh, envy is just a little bit, you know, like jealousy. At best, envy might actually be something we can harness and use. We can you know, put in advertisements, get people to buy things, help our economy, spur our economy on. You have apartment envy? Ooh, well, I have an apartment for you. <laughs> Uh, you, uh, you have, your friends have something that you don't have. Well, I can sell you that. That's essentially every advertisement that there is out there. Um, but envy, envy is so much more than that. Let me try to give you some definitions. Aristotle defines envy as pain in the sight of another's good fortune. Jonathan Edwards defines envy as opposition to another's comparative happiness. To try to put that another way, it's not just wanting someone else's life. It's assuming that their life should be your life. That's what envy is. And this, this creates, I think this actually creates an inability to um, have joy in another person's good. 
actually them having that joy all the more makes you hurt because you don't have it. Because envy is not just wanting what they have. It's resenting that they have it at all. And that's a big deal to actually hold those two aspects of envy together. Because we don't just want to have as well. We don't want them to have at all. And in contrast, praise. Praise. When you praise somebody, what you're saying is, I'm glad you do have. You are so great. I'm not nearly as gifted as you. I'm not nearly as talented as you. I could never do those things. Praise, when you do that, it builds and highlights often someone else, um, um, what they have done, even over what you have not done or what you don't have. And of course, then envy then is the opposite of praise. So go back, look at our text now today, uh, looking at David and Saul. They're coming back from the defeat of the Philistines. David's killed Goliath. All is glorious. Everybody's happy. People are dancing in the streets. And um, Saul... I mean, if you, if you look at it from the eyes of most people, David defeated Goliath, but it was Saul who had the wisdom and the foresight to put David in that position. So he gets honor and glory too. And so they're both coming home as heroes, right? They should both be happy that the townspeople were coming out and dancing like a ticker tape parade for the heroes. And the song that Saul hears is this, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And what a lot of commentaries point out is that Saul didn't actually have to be upset, as I just noted. That he could have just enjoyed the part of the highlights that he actually was in the song at all. But instead, in verse 8, it says he got angry. And that anger burned in him, and it says it displeased him greatly. And then finally, in verse 9, it it culminates in, and from that time, Saul, I think it says, Saul kept a close eye on David. Was a close eye on David. Now in Hebrew, that word close eye me is actually more literally translated a jealous eye, an envious eye. And notice it says from that time, uh, nobody talks about this as well. Envy almost never goes away. It stays inside, like it roots itself in its in your heart. And it actually, as you see later on in verse 10, it can invite um, other things into your life as well. Even supernatural things, other spirits. I mean, it it has that kind of power. And so this is serious because envy is actually quite natural. In New York City, uh, everybody lives in close proximity to each other. It's actually fairly easy if you walk around Manhattan a a bunch, you can walk by a billionaire's mansion. And let me try to give you a thought that I'm almost positive 99% of you, including me, uh, you would never have walking by a billionaire's mansion. You would never probably say, man, I am so glad that they get to enjoy that house. I am so glad that that's one of their 10 properties. Let me sit back and just think about all the ways that they get to enjoy and relish in those things. Right? No, no, good good for them. We would never say that. That's an unnatural thought for most of us. It's either, here's what happens, either I wish I had that too, or gosh, man, it's wrong for them to have that. How dare they have that? I'm upset that they have that. And let me try to tell you what's happening, I think, in that moment. That's an envious heart. Now, some of you might push back and say, well, wait, 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 can't we, isn't it, can't we say morally that they shouldn't have that much? But, But what you're doing in that moment 
is you're actually judging. You're placing a moral structure and you're saying, you know, it's as if we know if somebody should or shouldn't have what they have. And often I think what happens is we presume the worst in the individual, right? We might assume that they're bad or they're corrupt. And you know what? They very well may be, but you don't know that. We don't know what they've done or what they've given to or what, how much they really have. But we do it anyway because it'll, guess what happens? Envy allows us to go up, to feel morally superior as we tear them down. Do you see how dark that is? Because actually it hides behind the guise of morality and economic equality, which are good things. Trust me, they are. But when we judge and take down, the spirit is inside of us. It hides in us. We can't even, this is why nobody even talks about it. Another reason why I think envy is so serious, uh, if we, and, and the reason why we don't address it, is um, it actually doesn't allow us to, act, to enjoy and live the life we actually do have. Envy is like an, like an acid that you pour into your heart. Um, it's where you can't love your body because it's not like that body over there. Uh, you, you, um, you can't be grateful for what you have because you can only think about what you don't have. Right? You can't be content. We can't even rest. We can't be at peace because of all these things. Frankly, uh, you can't even seek justice, I would actually say, when you're envious. Envy, uh, if you're trying to seek justice with envy, it leads to vengeance, not fairness. It'll lead you to take people down, and it'll not create a space where you actually pull people together and back up. And I think that we're, we're seeing this in real time in our politics, in our public square, um, in our social media platforms, even in our relationships in churches. The world is the way that it is because of envy. This is why I think this is one of the, this is the thing we need to talk about. Because unless we address this first, we'll never get to justice. We'll never get to peace or harmony because we'll be filled with this bitterness, we'll be filled with this hurt and this anger and this rage, and it will lead to more injustice. And so we need to ask ourselves before we move forward, where might we be envious right now? Right? Is, it with, is it with your body? Is it with your home, your career, your life? Because you can't be for the betterment of others if deep down you're mad about the progress of your own. It's that serious. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Now, secondly, fine. Uh, what are the signs of envy? What might be the tests that we can give ourselves to see what's going on in there? Well, I think there's at least uh, three signs. Envy is, there, there's a, a comparison element, there is a resentment element, and there is a uh, bitterness element as well. All right, comparison, resentment, bitterness. So first, comparison. What set off this whole encounter with Saul, if you go back to the text, it's the song in verse 7. 
it shouldn't have triggered him, but because the song was about him, but it did, and the refrain played, played over and over in his ear. And the formula is fairly simple. David gets this, but I only get that. What is that? What's happening there? That's comparison. Praise in this situation would have been this. David gets good for him. I'm so glad for him. He gets the house and the car and the job and the money. But Saul can't rejoice for him. He can't praise him. Instead, he compares. And the first sign of envy in your life is that you compare what they have to what you don't have. Right? You can't value your inherent beauty for beauty's sake because you don't have that beauty. You can't value life because all you can think about, sorry, you can't value their life because all you can think about is your own life. I can't be happy that they're fit and that, and that they're thriving because I'm not fit and I don't think I'm thriving the way I need to be. And so comparison um, is the first sign. I think this comes out the most sometimes in our jobs when uh, you know you or your coworkers are working on the same project and one of them gets promoted over you and you think that you should. There's almost no way you can be happy for them. A comparison leads to competition. You know, who can win? Who can take over the, the you know, uh, first place? And if somebody's already there, how do we take them down? So this is actually deep inside of all of us. Go back to Adam and Eve. Right? What did they have? They had everything. They had perfect relationship, food, love, life, friendship. And yet they had this one nagging thing that they didn't have. That thing. That thing over there, that tree. Um, I have this, yeah, 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 but I don't have that. And that's what led to the fall. Is it any wonder that if that's what started in the garden, that, that it's still in everything else that we do? Comparison makes everything about you because it never can be just about them. When we bitterly say, I'm so gl-, this is what happens so bit- a lot. People will say, I'm so glad you're married. Even though I'm not, right? That's, that's envy. I'm so, I'm so glad you had this great moment in your life. Wish I had that moment in my life. Envy. See, the sad reality is, is that comparison keeps us from enjoying what we actually do have. Saul was a king. He was praised. He had money and power and he had, he had it all. And yet it wasn't enough. Friends, look at our lives. Look where we're envious. And that's, that it's in those spaces that you might be ignoring all the millions, maybe millions of things that you actually do have that, that are going for you. Where are you comparing and it's killing? You can even compare. Guess what? You can compare yourself to yourself. I used to be like this. I used to have that. Now I don't have that. Comparison is the first sign of envy. Okay. Second sign of envy. Resentment. If comparison is envious because of, I want what they have, resentment is envious because I don't just want it, I want them to not have it. And I resent them for it. Notice Saul doesn't throw one spear, he throws two spears. He doesn't want just the glory and honor of David's life. He doesn't just want it. He wants, literally, David not to have any life at all. He doesn't want him to have it at at, all. He wants him to have nothing at all. Right? We don't just want the apartment that they have. I don't want them to have it. It's not fair. That's resentment. I secretly think this is why I think a lot of us watch reality television. 
I know I'm 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 going to pull this out because I think what happens in in reality television when we when we listen to celebrity gossip, we see the dumpster fires that are literally on the screen in front of us, and it makes us at some level feel like ah. Oh, we love watching a train wreck because why? It makes us feel better about our own dumpster fire, fire, um, fires, our own train wrecks. That's actually resentment. Being happy in the demise in another is a sign of envy. This happens not just on an individual level. You can do this on the macro level too. Zoom out for a bit. And yes, a capitalistic society encourages envy because it drives people to achieve more and to have more and to consume more. But more socialist societies actually equally cause envy. How? Because resentment means not just I don't have, but I don't want them to have more than me. And if we don't check our envy, um, what happens then is calls for equality can actually be less about fairness and more about resentment. And look at the history books about this. Uh, In Russia, when the USSR fell, when the people took over, they were ruthless with those who had more. Most revolutions, the French Revolution, right? History shows that when envy is what's really driving things, you won't create a more just society, you actually end up creating more death in society. That is why so many calls for justice that are going on right now, both left and right, are actually creating more injustice. Because the product is vengeance. The driving force is vengeance. True justice would be fairness. It would be rightness where all people can participate. Fake justice tears down you because because you tore down me. Fake justice says, hey, you hurt me, so now I hurt you. That's the definition of resentment, and it's the root, it's one of the roots of envy. Now, last sign, bitterness. Bitterness is not uh, just an action like comparison. It's not a, a focusing on, on what they have in resentment. Bitterness is more of a state of mind. It's the lack of sweetness in our life. After Saul throws that spear and it doesn't work, what does he do? He sends David to the battlefield. So why? So he can gain glory and honor and victory? No. Saul wants him to now die on that battlefield. He's hoping the battle will take care of his problem. See, bitterness is that state of despondency that pushes Saul to even try a different way to get rid of him. Bitterness makes Saul replay that grievance over and over and over in his head. And it sits in you and it's a state of being. Comparison is active. Resentment is is, uh, passive. It's a a view. But bitterness is a state of despondency. And we nurse it and we use it to validate ourselves. We use it, um, we actually suck on it for power. I I, I usually sleep pretty well at, at night. But the times when I can't, what's happening is I'm replaying over and over and over again where I feel like I've been wronged, where I feel like this is not okay. That's bitterness. If comparison tires you out because you're, it's through competition and resentment focuses you less on what you have and more on what you don't have, bitterness is the slow destruction of your ability to be content in all things. Right? What's contentment? Contentment is is this, the state of mind of tranquility, not through circumstance. But what happens in bitterness is it's completely bound up into our circumstances. And so fine, last thing then, what's our solution? What is the only possible solution? Well, envy, as we've already shown, is more serious than we thought. 
it's prevalent in your life and you don't even know it because it's in our comparisons, it's in our resentments, it's in our bitternesses. It's everywhere and yet culturally, <laughs> we don't talk about it anywhere. So what's the solution? Um, true story. Um, I used to be part of a bowling league. Yeah, I used to bowl like with pins and a bowling ball uh, when I was a kid. And my older brother and I went to this league together and sometimes we did tournaments. And I still remember this tournament. I think I was in third grade. He was in fifth grade. And uh, we went and my brother did really, really good. He got first place. I think I got like fifth or sixth or something like that. And that was back then when uh, people, not everybody got trophies. And so my brother got this massive trophy. I think I got a participation piece of paper thing. It might as well have been tissue paper. I, I, I threw it away immediately. Right? Because I, all I could think about was that he had that trophy and I didn't. And it was pure. I still remember it. That's how much envy I had. I couldn't shake it. I, I stole that trophy. I tried to break that trophy. I tried to hide that trophy. See, I didn't just want it from me. I didn't want him to have it, right? Um, I actually remember it was so bad my dad tried to um, help me through it. He told me a story of uh, a young woman that was actually in his church a while ago who was part of a beauty pageant. I think this was in the South in the 70s when, um, you know, these were more prevalent. (laughs) And so she's in this beauty pageant, and she actually comes in fourth place. And her friend comes in first place. And um, he preached a sermon, I think, on, sun, on a Sunday about loving your neighbor as yourself. And this, and this young woman comes up to him and says, wait, let me try to get this straight. I've always thought I have loved my neighbor as myself. But does that really mean then that we should send, spend every bit of time and effort that I normally would be to, to pursue my own happiness, to pursue the happiness of, of others? Right? To love our neighbor as ourself, does that mean to make their happiness our happiness? When they succeed at being happy, I should be equally as happy as if it happened to me. And the answer is yes. And the young woman said, but that's impossible. No one thinks like that. No one acts like that. There's, there's no way, it was, I, I thought about this myself, there was no way for me to be just as excited in my brother winning that tournament, as if I had just won it. Because you know why? Because I lost. But that's what it means to really be able to love your neighbor as yourself. Which then begs the question, well, who's actually ever truly and really done that? Jesus. Right? There's only been one person I can, I can think of who hasn't failed to love people as they should. Sin isn't just doing wrong things. It's failing to do right things well, even loving our neighbors as ourselves. And there is nobody who's actually done that like Jesus. The reason why the world is a mess right now, the reason why we are at each other's throats, the reason why we deeply need to be rescued from from envy that we don't even know we have is because we don't put other people's happiness above our own and it's tearing the world apart. If you thought everybody was just, hey, just everybody do their part, if everybody just did their part, it wouldn't be enough. Love is putting somebody else's happiness before your own. Love is putting your happiness inside somebody else's happiness. And that means that envy, the desires that we have, is ultimately the opposite of love. Envy is you weep when 
uh, when they rejoice. And you rejoice when they weep. But real love, what you see with Jesus is (laughs) he weeps with those who weep and he rejoices with those who rejoice. Only Jesus has done this perfectly well. He actually did put his happiness inside someone else's happiness. It was in yours. Right? He was the only one who did not begrudge us anything. He did not hold back anything for himself, but wanted us to have it all, making what we have what he did. When I was in grade school, I went over to my friend Eugene's house. I remember he lived in, in our building. Uh, his parents had immigrated from the United States. He didn't speak English very much. And um, uh, his parents didn't speak it at all. And they worked long hours so his son could go to school um, in, the, in the United States. And they did it because they put their happiness in their son's happiness. They loved him that much. And only Jesus did the same thing cosmically. He left his family as well. And he gave up everything to come here and to die here for you. He emptied himself of all that he had so that you could be filled with all that you need. He lifted you up by coming down. And so the question, the last question to ask yourself is, will you place him at the center of your life? Will you be filled with him and not with what you think you have to have from anyone else? Because if you did, and to the degree that you do, you would start to seek a more just world. That's why we're talking about this. We can't start talking about what that more just world will look like before we actually talk about what will make us the types of people who would do this. In fact, you will only be able to really do this well if your hearts are filled with his love, not needing to be filled by their love or their things. Jesus Friends, Jesus is not mad at you right now because he emptied himself of everything. That means he even emptied himself of that and lost everything for you. He is the happiest knowing that you're happy in him. And so when the power of that moves into your life, you know what happens? It just It's like a sonic boom. It reverberates out in joy, filled with his love. It means that you're not needing anyone or any, or you're not needing anyone or anything else to fill your life. Comparison, no need anymore. You have all that you need in him. Resentment, you don't want to have what they have. You have all, you, <laughs> look what you do have, bitterness. For what? The sweetness of Christ, the knowledge that nothing can come between you and to him. He is a better fulfillment than that promotion that you thought you needed. He is a better security than that relationship that you wanted. He is a more sure hope than the career that you're hoping to get, than the child that you're trying to make a success. What? Think about what you could do with this. If you had this in your life, you could go out now and work for justice. You could sit in peace. You could move out in profound ways, pull people in, not push them out, bring, be full of unity, not, not um, division. The end of Amanda Gorman's poem, uh, The Hill That We Climb, I think actually has a really great taste of this. But I think you can only fully do this to be for the happiness of others if we know that Jesus has made us his happiness. Let me read you the last few lines. She says this. She says, When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it.
In Jesus we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that Redeemer Lincoln Square, as a body, would, would stop comparing, stop resenting, stop being bitter. How can we do that, Father? We, the only way, the only solution is to be filled. And we're not. There's, Father, the, the division that we're seeing, help us to repent of, of where we've sowed that division. Help us to repent of, of, of feeling we know better. The, the, the snide remarks, the, the secret um, feeling we know how to do things. But, uh, Father, I confess myself um, where I've been a, a proponent, of, where I've been flawed in this way. I pray you let me just be filled with your joy and it radiates out. Let me know that there, I don't need to earn or prove myself. I don't have to be more than what you've created me to be. And even through my flaws, you, you build and you create Pray every single one of us can have that same space, Father, to sit and to rest in who you are, to reflect on, on, on that, Father. Change our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.